I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tony Hillerman's haunting tour of terror. The Blessing Way. Starring Ed Nelson. Barbara Anderson. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by the makers of Quaker State Motor Oil and State Farm Insurance. This is The Zero Hour. On Mutual Radio. Wolves play an integral part in Navajo witchcraft and superstition. In a way, a wolf is the devil. There have been reports of wolf sightings on the Navajo reservation... These are of particular significance to Dr. Bergen McKee, Ph.D. He's authored several books on the subject, and he has come to the reservation in northeastern Arizona to continue his research for a new textbook. He's brought with him a colleague, Dr. Jeremy Canfield, and he's enlisted the assistance of Joe Leaphorn, a full-blooded Navajo, an officer in the Law and Order Division, and an old friend of Dr. McKee's. Joe Leaphorn a man who is good at his job, is not satisfied with the diagnosis that a local Navajo, Louis Horseman, died of alcohol poisoning. The evidence dictates otherwise. But Dr. Bergen McKee, a scientist in his own way, can accept the fact that the man is dead and leave it at that. Little does he suspect what terror lurks in the night to come. The Blessing Way will continue in a moment. Open up! It's me, Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of all France, much of the civilized world, and Louisiana if the deal falls through. Oui, Pierre, hide in the closet. Napoleon must not find you here. Coming, Nappy! Ah, Josephine, I had to see you. Napoleon, my dear Etart, what are you doing here? I thought you were at Waterloo. I was, but it ended early. What is that? I smell cigarette smoke. You know I hate you to smoke. I didn't. I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I started again. Aha! The smoke coming from that closet. Come out of there, you scoundrel. And on cart. It was only in there to pick up the dry cleaning. Take that, you filthy cargo. This world history lesson was brought to you by your American Cancer Society, which says smoking can be injurious to your health. To say! <laughs> In more ways than one. I left the campsite before dawn. Called Joe Leaphorn from the gas station on the highway at Chinley and explained what I'd learned from the old woman Gray Rocks. Then ate a leisurely breakfast at Bishbito's Diner while waiting for Joe to arrive. 
I looked up from the grounds of my third cup of coffee and saw him come in. Uh, thanks for the call, Bergen. You uh, saved me a lot of legwork. Hey, sit down, Joe. You need coffee? No, no thanks. But I will sit down. Leave it to a white man to get through to an old Navajo woman. <laughs> I just have a way with women, Joe. Old women. They can't hurt me. I got something else you might be interested in. Copy of the autopsy report. Can I see it? Here, take a look. Then let's go find that boy who went to war in Horseman. Subject Lewis Horseman. War name unknown. Age 22, address. Read further down. Estimated time of death between 6 p.m. and midnight. Cause of death? Suffocation. Substantial accumulation of fine granular material in the lung tissue, windpipe, throat, and nostrils. Fine granular material? We call it sand. Sand? In his lungs? And not enough alcohol in his bloodstream to fill a shot glass. The medical examiner said it looked like he got caught in a cave-in, like he'd been buried in sand, buried alive. Hmm, you think so? And somebody dug him out and laid him out there on the road with a bottle of whiskey he hadn't drunk? Not likely. There wasn't any sand in his cuffs or in his pockets or anywhere else. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense anyway. I think I know a lot about witches. You think you know a lot about witches. How do you kill a witch? Who do you mean? Do you smother them? Remember that case over in Fruitland? That guy whose daughter died of TB? He shot four of them. Mm -hmm. And then over in Tignos Pass a couple of years ago, one was beaten to death. You think somebody thought Horseman was a witch? Makes a certain amount of sense. But I don't know. Hey, Joe, you're looking out the window like... Are you all right? Why kill somebody like Horseman? Just another poor soul who didn't quite know how to be a Navajo and couldn't learn to act white. No good for anything. That Fruitland case was mine. I heard that Navajo wolf talk and I let it slide. So we had five bodies to bury. Four? No, it was five. The guy shot an old hand trembler and his wife and a school teacher and her husband... Then he thought about it and he blew his brains out. Well, what are you trying to do? Figure out a way to blame yourself for horsemen? I could have gone in and looked for him. Now, let's go find that Nez boy. Their family Hogans aren't far from shoemakers. We took Joe's carry-all and went to find someone named Nez. Someone who might have been the last person to see Lewis Horseman alive. I waited in the truck while Joe went in. Sometimes a uniform helps when you've got questions to ask. Joe returned with an odd expression on his face. Well? I found out a little. Kid's name is Billy. Billy Ness. Did you talk to him? Wasn't there. I spoke to his uncle. Says the kid took a horse this morning back up into the mountains. <laughs> Does that mean anything? Probably not. My uncle says he does it all the time. Whenever there's work to be done. But he did say Billy knew where Horseman was hiding and went up to tell him like I figured. And? Didn't find him. At least that's what Billy told his uncle. Think he was lying? I'm sure it's the truth. The uncle told me something else. Billy Nez is Horseman's younger brother. On the drive back to Chinle, Joe explained how that could be. The family broke up and Billy moved in with his uncle, so he used his uncle's name. The only name that really counts anyway is a war name, and that's a family secret. It's only used in ceremonials like a blessing way. Joe wanted to find a man named Sam George Takes, a law and order sergeant operating out of the Chinley sub-agency. 
Tex was out to lunch at Bishmito's Diner. He was a big, heavy man. To call him husky would be an understatement. He was digging into a hot lunch when we found him. Yeah, well, you know how it is, Joe. Summer, school's out. He's probably off chasing some girl. No telling when he'll be back. Well, that's right. That's what you do. Hang around some girl's hogan. Or if your brother is missing, maybe you'll look for your brother. And he don't find him. He comes home and his uncle sends him in here like he said he would. We find out whatever he knows, which is probably nothing. And that's the end of it. Well, why are you worrying? Because you know how news travels around here. It could be by now the boy knows his brother is dead. So maybe he connects it with this witching gossip. Then he collects some cousins and uncles and goes looking for the wolf. Oh, uh, maybe. Either you boys don't eat. This chip beef ain't bad. Look, this is your territory, Sam George. Where would you start looking? Oh, hell, Joe. He could be anywhere. Do you remember that bootlegger? We looked four years for him. We never found nothing. What about that rocket the military lost three or four years ago? They ever find it? I don't know. I don't think they ever did. There was a $10,000 reward. <laughs> be right back. I've got a phone call to make. Boy, you can't beat this place for a hot meal, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You gonna have something? No, I, I already ate. Uh, look, what's this about a lost rocket? Oh, they shoot him off over at the Tonopah site, clear over to White Sands, New Mexico. Right over the reservation. Used to lose one now and then, but they got a radar station now over at Tall Poles Butte, track them all the way to the ground. Yeah, that's science for you. Yeah. Hey, you're a scientist, aren't you? <laughs> Not the same thing. I'm an anthropologist. Oh, yeah. Old bones and stuff like that, right? Yeah, that's close. Uh, by the way, you, you wouldn't happen to know where a man called Ben Yazzie has been keeping his summer hogan, would you? Yazzie, Yazzie. Oh, sure. He used to graze some sheep way up on the high slopes over between Horsefell and Many Ruins Canyons. Nice fellow. Ah. How about a cup of coffee? <laughs> Come on, it won't kill you. Well, there went our motive. Colonel Stump said the reward expired two years ago. They never found it, and they hope it stays lost. The bird's obsolete. We're going to We're still taking a lot of car trips these days, but these days, most of them are short trips. Unfortunately, short trips are tough on your car because it never gets the chance to really warm up enough to eliminate harmful deposits, things like rust, grit, and acid. They build up, and before you know it, they start doing lasting damage to your engine. Short trips call for the high-quality protection of Quaker State motor oil. Quaker State is refined from 100% pure Pennsylvania-grade crude oil, the world's choicest. Then it's fortified to protect your engine against deposits and keep your car running young. Now that you're taking more short trips than ever, it's nice to know you can find Quaker State more places than ever. Quaker State, your car, you keep it running young. We'll return to our story in a moment. If your house needs insulation and you don't have storm windows and doors and caulking around the doors and windows, you could be spending 50% more than necessary on heating costs this winter. The National Bureau of Standards recommends three inches of insulation in the walls and under the floor of your house, and six inches in the attic. 
weather-stripping movable door and window joints, and caulking around the frames will stop cold drafts. And storm windows and doors can drastically cut heat loss through glass. While you're thinking about heat loss, hot water pipes lose a lot of their heat going through cool basements, unless they have an insulated wrapping. So think seriously about spending a little money to save quite a bit. You will also save on short fuel supplies. For more information about cutting, heating, and cooling costs, send for a copy of the fact sheet, Home Energy Savers. It's free from Consumer Information, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. There was nothing I could do to console Joe Leaphorn. He was the most pig-headed man I ever met. Maybe that's why he's good at what he does. I decided to leave the business of murder to Joe and carry on about my own business, witchcraft and superstition. I stopped back at camp to see if Jeremy was around, but he was gone. From there, I went off to find Ben Yazi. It was really beautiful country, a bonanza to the artist's eye. Exciting frontier still untouched by what we city folks call civilization. The white man looks at it and calls it a desert. The Navajo name for it means beautiful valley. I drove past several small grassy meadows on my way to the upper slopes. Some were barren, having been heavily grazed by sheep. But most of them were green and full. Ben Yazi must have been terribly frightened of something and moved his flock to higher country. I honked a horn when I crossed the finely eroded ridge and saw Ben Yazi's hogan on the slope below. Merely a gesture of courtesy. Official notice that a visitor was coming. No cooking pots hung under the brush shelter. No clothing hung out in the air. No overt sign that anyone was living there at all. sat on the running board of the truck and leaned back against the door. It was easy to see why Ben Yazi had built his Ogan here. Steep sandstone cliffs rising abruptly on two sides afforded the Hogan shelter from the southwest winds and shade from the late afternoon sun. I studied the cliffs, 200 feet of sheer, smooth, reddish stone with streaks of dark discoloration from seepage and then a softer layer of gray, pocked and carved with blowholes and caves. To the north and east was an expanse of colossal erosion dominated by another towering flat-topped butte. There was no grass in sight and, and no sheep. I wondered where Ben Yazi kept his flock. Surely it must have been nearby. Then it came to me, borne on the sudden light breeze that fanned up the arroyo past the Hogan's, I recognized it instantly. The foul odor of death and decaying flesh. I hadn't noticed it before by the hook ends. It had to be coming from somewhere else. I walked slowly down the slope. I listened. 
coming from somewhere beyond the ridge. I, I heard something. I was certain. Faint, but something. I hiked up the ridge, stopping to listen every few paces. But all I could hear was my own shortness of breath and the internal thumping of my jittery heart pounding in my chest. Finally, I, I reached the top and... I dropped suddenly in the ground as a cloud of giant black scavenger birds erupted from everywhere. Ravens. So that's what I heard. I lay there on my belly and looked down into the arroyo. And I saw why, where the, the stench, why the ravens and why Ben Yazi was gone. There were two sheep pens built to cedar poles in a semicircle with the arroyo bank furnishing one wall. One pen was empty. In the other were five large rams who was pointing to the sky with horrible, gaping holes in their bloody throats. Agent Darrell Hutchison of Garden City, Georgia, explains why personal service and car insurance is just as important as State Farm Mutual's low rates. We are not always the lowest price that an individual can find for insurance. So I have had people come by that have already gotten prices from other companies. They come by, and this particular time, we were a little higher than they were. But after talking with them, tell them that I can give them one thing that the other company cannot give them, and that is my personal service. They know that I am here. I'm here to stay as an agent. And these points uh, make a difference. They don't want to be treated as a number. They still want to be treated as an individual, especially when they have a claim problem. They want to be given service because that's what they're paying for. The Zero Hour continues after this. shock of my discovery abated, I, I settled on a simple explanation. The rams had been killed by coyotes or dogs or even perhaps a wolf, but a four-legged one. I knew coyotes were active in the area this time of year. Old woman Greyrocks wouldn't tell me who had seen the witch. It must have been Benyazi. 
And after all, a witch is more than a man can be expected to cope with. I'd go to Shoemaker's in the near future and inquire as to Ben Yazzie's current whereabouts. His story would undoubtedly support my scapegoat theory. Although I had quite a scare, I was suddenly optimistic. It was nearly dusk by the time I reached the hard-packed floor of Many Ruins Canyon. The clouds overhead were active, and the threat of rain hung in the air. The breeze was cool and carried on at the fragrance of wet pine. Life in the rugged outdoors was agreeing with me. And yet I, I felt exhausted from my afternoon's outing. I had no complaints, however. Quite the contrary. I, I was beginning to feel exhilarated by what had begun as a reluctant decision to come back to the reservation after six long, lonely years of self-pity and solitude. My self-satisfaction was short-lived, however. Just as I turned the truck up the slope to the campsite, it dawned on me. It couldn't have been a coyote that killed those five rams. The cedar poles around the pen had to be at least six feet high. I remembered the length of the shadows and the time of day. Ben Yazi had to have built the corral with coyotes or wolves in mind and decided to keep them out. No animal could jump a six-foot fence. Damn. How could I be so careless, so stupid? I switched off the ignition and sat silently for a moment, utterly disgusted with myself. I'd have to go back to Ben Yazzie's Hogan's and find out exactly how the coyotes had gotten in. A storm was brewing as darkness settled into the canyon. I looked around and realized that Jeremy's camper was still gone. It didn't really surprise me, I suppose. Once Dr. Canfield finds himself some ruins to poke around in, nothing short of a hurricane would catch his attention. Jeremy, where the devil have you gone? The portable butane stove was unlit. I touched it. It was cold. Then it was his turn to cook, too. Good old reliable Dr. Canfield. Though I didn't know why, I was worried about him. It didn't figure he'd be puttering around old ruins by moonlight. And the campsite appeared undisturbed, like he'd left after I did in the morning and hadn't come back at all. He might have left me a note. Well, I kept a flashlight in the glove compartment of the truck. I saw the tread marks from the camper tires. Then back closer to camp, illuminated by the flashlight beam, I could see the mess kits, pots and pans, a canteen, first aid items. inside the tent. My light attracted the night flyer's bugs, darted frantically through the shaft of light, thumping off the glass and casting magnified shadows everywhere. It was spooky. Both bedrolls were rolled up. No preparations had been made for sleep. I was convinced that Jeremy had not been back since morning. I looked on the ground. I looked everywhere. And then, then I tilted the flashlight so the beam exposed the folding table we'd set up the night before. And that's when I saw it. 
A sheet of white typing paper weighed down by the turquoise stone that Canfield had jokingly called a frog. His charm against witches. I read the note carefully, beginning with the letterhead. From the desk of Dr. J.R. Canfield. Bergen. A Navajo dragged himself up here with a leg all swollen up with snake bite. I'm taking him to Tignos Pass. Be back tomorrow, John. John. Why, John? I read the note again and stared, squinting at the signature. Was this another of Canfield's little games? A joke? Was it something very different? Something urgent? Had he issued a warning of some kind by signing his name John instead of Jeremy? But I, I couldn't sleep. My mind was a day ahead of me. In the morning, I'd drive back to the upper slopes to inspect Ben Yazzie's sheep pens and perhaps drop into Tignos Pass and see if Jeremy was indeed on a mission of mercy, as the letter said. Then I, I remembered our visitor. Chances were, Ellen Leon would be showing up in the morning in search of a missing engineer. Just what I didn't need. A woman to make demands on my precious time. Finally, I began to drift off on the precarious margin of sleep. I slid out of bed, quietly climbed into my clothes, drew back the tent flap. In a crouched position, I could see the moon had risen halfway up the sky, and the west wall of the canyon was flooded with pale light. Came screeching out of the darkness out of nowhere. All eyes, wings, and a jagged talons. It sprayed my tent and it blew off. But I had seen it. The wet owl. In Navajo folklore, the wet owl symbolizes the ghost. The ghost of someone who has met, or was about to meet, violent and sudden death. <laughs> You are listening to Mutual's presentation of The Zero Hour. Hey, John. Here you leaving the service soon. What are you going to do, huh? Well, I'm not sure, but uh, I know I want a job. Well, the Army trained you in communications. And, and you had that extra training through the Veterans Administration. Right, but if I work nights, I could go to school on the GI Bill and get a math degree, too. Hmm, I'd get the degree. Say, how about me? I'd sure like to get into banking. Think I got a chance? Why not? A lot of banks are hiring veterans. And Uncle Sam can pay you monthly allowances while you're in training. Why don't you talk to the VA people? Hey, I'm hungry. Yeah, me too. How about lunch? Yeah, okay. Don't sound like disabled vets, do they? When it comes to work, they aren't disabled either. They've got training, ambition, eagerness to learn. All they need is a chance. You can give it to them. Contact your Veterans Administration or local state employment service office. Hire the disabled veteran. He's got a lot to give. Hi, I'm Pinocchio, the big nose and all that. You know, but seriously, lots of kids don't know about me. How can kids read if they don't have any books? And millions of kids, black, white, red, yellow, brown, all races, live in homes without any books. Getting books into the hands of these girls and boys is what the national program, RIF, Reading is fundamental, is all about. 
Here's what Rip has found out. When kids choose the books they want because the subjects interest them and they own the book, that makes reading fun. And when reading is fun, it's just fundamental. Books widen the kids' world and their abilities and their whole life. Every community needs Riff. Find out what you and Riff can do in your community. Just like Riff, Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. That's Riff, R-I-F, Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C., 20560. Right now. If America's to grow up thinking, reading is fundamental. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Blessing Way. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Today's episode brought to you in part by Quaker State Motor Oil and State Farm Insurance. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. You have been listening to The Zero Hour. A presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System in association with Hollywood Radio Theater. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. <laughs>